0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit
1: sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 4 through 20. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Well, we are in Revelation chapter one. We're going to be finishing up this chapter. Uh, this, this morning, last week, we began a five-month-long study on this last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation. And so we are excited that you're here. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump in this morning. I think this um, is one of the most important chapters in all the Bible and I think it can have uh, a genuine life-changing impact on your life today, if you hear it, if you see it, if you believe it. So let me pray and let's get started. Father, we, we, do, we thank you for that uh, time of worship this morning. We thank you for the worship team. We thank you for um, just the passionate um, opportunity to worship you. And we thank you for people leading us into worship you in that way, that you are deserving of all of our glory, all of our honor, all of our praise. And so thank you for that opportunity this morning. And now, Father, we, we want to settle in. We want to open our ears. We want to open our hearts uh, to your word that you want to speak to us this morning. And so I ask that you would really think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that you would allow us to hear what you would have to say to us, um, that I wouldn't personally get in the way of what your word wants to speak to your people, and Father, we would respond appropriately this morning uh, to you all honor and all glory and all pl- on all power. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we already heard this morning through our scripture reader, this chapter is spectacular. It presents to our mind's eye a breathtaking and a resting picture of Jesus full of glory and full of wonder. It's going to be my contention this morning that your greatest need in life is to have this scene in the Bible tattooed on your consciousness. Very few of us actually believe that, but I can guarantee you that every time you sin, every time you blow it in your life, Every time you choose to play it safe and not share your faith or not invite someone to church or to missional community, at the root of that behavior, at the root of that sin is this a failure to see and appreciate Jesus for who he really is. And this scene of the Bible is like a fire that has been set in our imaginations. It's meant to burn up and consume every small, safe, comfortable, and combustible image of Jesus that our culture has passed down to us. This flame is meant to consume the little Jesus of our mind and to reveal to us the real Jesus, the eternal Son of God. And for that reason, maybe we should think of the Apostle John as more of an arsonist. And a pastor. The author to the book of Hebrew tells us that our God is a consuming fire. John is bringing us into the presence of the real Jesus and that should set the curtains of our imaginations on fire here. It's meant to set us on fire for God. In fact, as we'll see next week, one of the things that Jesus says he cannot stand is a lukewarm person, a person who calls themselves a Christian but doesn't really get too moved or too excited about God. He says he'd rather you be hot or cold. He says he will spit lukewarm believers out of his mouth, meaning they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So this morning, our call is to draw closer to the flame. We want to burn white hot in our worship for God. We want the real Jesus to set us on fire for God and then send us out into our ordinary lives, day-to-day, ordinary lives, burning bright for him. Now, I also know that many of us get turned off by this type of talk, especially white middle-class people. We get a little, whoa, religious enthusiasm, settle down, right? We don't come to church to get excited. We come to church to get insight and a little practical wisdom to help make their life a little better. With all due respect, that is not what church is meant to be about. Our Sunday gathering is about encountering God in worship through his word, liturgy, song, and sacrament. If it feels like a concert and a TED Talk, it's probably not true worship of the real Jesus. True worship should bring you into the presence of a holy God that blows you away. It captures your imagination in such a way that it simultaneously humbles you to the dust and exalts you to the heavens. And here's my contention. If that happens, you don't need... 10 easy ways to share your faith. You don't need 10 tips on living your best life now. One encounter with the real God has a way of rearranging all your priorities, reordering all your loves and curing you of a thousand lesser ills. So that's my goal this morning. I'm praying that we would encounter the real Jesus through this scene in the Word of God this morning and that we would take the real Jesus out into our everyday lives as we leave here today. Now, as I was looking at this text, and believe me, this text is an overwhelming text. If you don't know, the book of Revelation has more references and allusions to the Old Testament than any other book in the Bible. You can hardly go one sentence without several references back to the Old Testament. So as I'm studying this text this week, I'm just constantly getting pushed back to the Old Testament, uncovering new things, and then I'm getting basically more and more overwhelmed at my task before me. How am I going to preach a sermon on this? How am I going to do this? And and. What I'm going to say this morning, I'm going to give us three things to kind of understand this text, but I am not telling you all that there is to say, saying all that there is to say about this text by any means, okay? I'm just like scratching the surface this morning, but I'm going to do that by uncovering three things. One, the context, two, Christ, and three, the candles. So that's my outline this morning. I'm very Baptist-y this morning. Christ, right? No, context, Christ, candles. I don't play this very well. So first, let's take a look at the context. Look at verse four. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. The apostle John, this is the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? John wrote the gospel of John. He wrote first, second, and third John. And now he's writing for us this depiction of the revelation of Jesus Christ. At this time, John is an old man. He is the last remaining of Jesus' 12 apostles. Everyone else has already been killed or died. All right, skip to verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus. In this verse, we learn several things about the context. First, John acknowledges that the recipients of this letter, the seven churches, are going through tribulation. Later, he names those seven churches. You heard them read this morning. We talked about this a little bit last week, but what's going on right now is the emperor Domitian was a maniacal man who demanded his subjects worship him as a god. And if you didn't, You could be thrown to the lions, you could be burned alive, or you could be crucified for treason. The believers during this time were so afraid that their Sunday gatherings were for Christians only, fearing that outsiders would be spies sent by the emperor to root them out and kill them. The majority of these Christians were doing what we would call today the underground church. This is happening right now in places like China and Iran. And Vladimir Putin signed a law uh, in effect this last week that it looks like Russia is moving this way as well. So John says, I know what you're going through. I see this great tribulation. I'm going through it with you. I'm your brother and your partner in this difficult time. John was on the island of Patmos because he was preaching the gospel and sharing about Jesus. Now, the island of Patmos—you can think of uh, Alcatraz. It was a—it was an island. I think it was like forty miles off the coast, and it was like—it was literally like a prison. It was a prison. That's all it was. So, John, this old man, is off on the island of Patmos. He's imprisoned there because he's a Christian, because he's preaching the gospel, and. Think about it. In your old age, he's, you know, in, in poor circumstances, he's getting poor food, and he's having a, a difficult time. And he's writing back to these churches that more than likely he was their pastor. He was their overseer of them. And he's writing to encourage them during this difficult season. And then John says something important. He says, This: We aren't just sharing in the tribulation. He says, We're also sharing in the kingdom and the patient endurance that is in Jesus. Now, this statement is is meant to connect their present suffering back to the suffering of Jesus Christ. John is saying we're all suffering just like Jesus did. Our response to that suffering needs to be the same as Jesus' was in this life. And that response was what? Patient endurance. Jesus kept the faith. He remained obedient under the suffering that he experienced in his life and death. So John is telling the Christians here how to respond to the suffering they're facing. Don't give up. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, the government doesn't approve of you. Yeah, you have to go underground and, and you're being persecuted for your faith. Endure, it's going to be worth it. But he also has to say, it's, you need to be patient in this. It's a patient endurance. What's he saying there? Don't lash out and try to take matters into your own hands. Be patient. Trust yourselves to God, just like Jesus did in his life. Don't forget, Jesus was killed too. But this is where he's going, but look at Jesus now. Jesus suffered for a little little while, but now is exalted in glory. That's the pattern for the normal Christian life. Suffering, then exaltation. In the kingdom of Jesus, suffering, social ostracism, Slander, misunderstanding, economic exploitation, and even violence against us should be expected because the kingdoms of this world are opposed to the kingdoms of God, to the kingdom of God. But they can only hurt us for a little while. The worst they can do is kill us. But all that does is bring us into glory. Now, poet George Herbert Herbert said this, death, Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him but a gardener. To kill a Christian and put a Christian in the ground is like placing a seed in the ground. We rise to new life because Jesus defeated death, hell, and the grave, and Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades. Now, I'm not gonna get too excited yet, because I'm going to get real excited later. This kind of context for us, we can listen to it and we can kind of, "Hmm, okay, okay. But we're far removed from it, aren't we? We can even hear about China and Iran and Russia and we go, oh, that's, 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 that's difficult, right? We don't live in that kind of country. In fact, let me just... I was planning to do this before and I totally forgot. It's my, my apologies. I want to thank all the veterans this morning for your service. That's one of the reasons that we do have the freedoms that we have in our country today to worship God, right? So we thank you, all your veterans, for your service this morning. Thank you. So our context here is far removed, right? We're not really being persecuted that much for our faith, Right? It seems a little weird to listen to these Christians being persecuted as we're sipping our Dunn Brothers coffee in this city-owned building with full permission to preach the gospel to you in those comfortable padded seats, right? It isn't a little weird this morning. Let me remind you of the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. He says this, Jesus says this, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, what we're seeing before. You kill the body, you plant us in the ground, we rise to new life. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is saying there's something much worse than persecution that leads to your discomfort or death. Persecution, it hurts, it's painful, it's difficult, it can lead to your death, but Jesus says there's something worse than that. To put it simply, it's a lack of fear of God. And that is exactly where we find ourselves Today. You ask 10 people who they think Jesus was or who they think Jesus is, and you're going to hear basically a really nice guy. That's what you're gonna hear about Jesus. And my experience has been that this is the same inside as outside the church. We haven't been thrown to lions in a long time. Instead, we've been lulled to sleep by a white, ethnocentric Jesus who has brown wavy locks with highlights an impeccably clear complexion and basically his only message is, be nice to one another. We bought this church over in Moline for Sacred City Moline we walked through it and there were like 25 white Jesus, effeminate pictures of him. And I'm like, throw these things away. Get them off the walls. I don't look at that guy and fall at his feet as though dead. And that's what John does when he sees the real Jesus this morning. See, We have believed in a Jesus who wants to come into our hearts and make us rich, upwardly mobile, beautiful Americans. A Jesus who promises to keep bad things from happening to us and our kids. And of course, he'll let us go to heaven when we die. Of course, there's heaven, right? The best part of the whole deal is that all he asks of us is to attend church a couple times a month. So basically, we have made a deal with a false God we call Jesus. We've made a deal that says, hey, little J, Jesus, I will accept you in my heart if you'll give me a life that's better than my neighbors. More money, better house, cooler friends, sexier spouse, more business opportunities, more obedient and successful children, and then as a cherry on tap, heaven, when I die, of course, I want to go to heaven when I die. And here's the deal. And God, you do all of that and I will give you a couple hours, a couple Sundays each month. But read the fine print, God. If you don't uphold your end of the bargain, bargain, I won't uphold mine either. If you don't give me what I want, then I won't go to church either. There's a lot more important things to do on a Sunday morning. Now, listen, I get it. I'm being facetious in a sense because nobody says that, but that's what's really going on in your heart if you take a look at your life. This is the heart of a person who has been lulled to sleep by a false God who they think is the real God. They see him as small and unimportant. So their response to him is small and unimportant. This small J Jesus is a cultural creation. It is not the historical real Jesus that we see in the scriptures. I love what John says here in chapter one, verse 10. Look, he says this, John, when writing this, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. What? John says Jesus has his own day. And it's a day that's meant to be used to worship him. That day is Sunday. Now, again, that might not sound a big deal to you because you've grown up in this culture where a lot of people go to church on Sundays. But what's going on in this context for thousands of years... The Jews worshiped God on Saturday. This was his day. They took it from the days of creation on the sixth day or the last day of the week. God rested and it was given to them in the Mosaic covenant, right? That God worked for six and then he rested on the seventh. At the time of John's letter, the Saturday Sabbath had been passed down for generations, hundreds Thousands of years, they've been worshiping God on Saturday. But then, when Jesus Christ rose from the dead on a Sunday morning, the Christians, who most of them were Jewish, made a huge change to their work week. They said, Sunday is now the Lord's day. We aren't going to work on Sunday anymore. We're going to worship Jesus on his day. We're going to make it a new priority in our lives to gather together on the Lord's day with the Lord's people and to think about him and to sing songs of worship to him, to pray to him and to read the scriptures that he gave us to read. We're going to do this on his day. Listen, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus made a real change to their work week that affected their ability to operate in their society. We don't even understand this. We're getting too closer because if you were around, you know, the older folks around us, you remember when nothing was open on Sundays, right? I remember as a kid, I couldn't rent a movie on Sunday. The movie store where I used to have to walk and take back pop cans to get one. I remember those days. I would go, it would be closed on Sunday. Like, right? I mean, the Lord's Day, I can't watch movies, right? I remember, now, now nearly everything is open, and your job is expecting you to catch up on emails and do things on Sunday as well. Everyone, at this, the time this was writing, guys, everyone was working on Sunday, there were no weekends. Okay, the Jews stopped working on Saturday, right? Friday night, actually, from sundown to sundown on Saturday, sundown to sundown on Saturday, sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. I knew something didn't sound right when I was saying that, right? And now all of a sudden, Christ resurrects on Sunday and they stop a tradition that had been going on for thousands of years. And they say, no, 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 now we're going to worship God on Sunday. The real Jesus made a real impact in their everyday life. Has he made one in yours? Everyone else, business was still going on. Everyone else was working. They said, no, no, it's the Lord's day. Listen, if you can look at your life and say, you know what? He hasn't. Sunday's just another day of the week. It's football day. It's relaxing day. It's me day. I pray the real Jesus can make a real impact in your life today if you get a real picture of him. You can really see him. And that's where we're gonna go right now. So first we saw the context. Now we're gonna see the Christ, the real Jesus Christ. I'm gonna give you four things that I want you to see from this text about Jesus, okay? Number one, he's one with God. Look at what John tells us about God in verse four. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Verse eight goes on to say that God is the alpha and omega. Now, if you don't know, those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. John is saying God is the A to Z. He is the author of all creation. Everything that exists, exists because God spoke. Again in verse eight, John says that God is the one who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty, That word almighty in the Greek means omnipotence. It represents God's controlling influence over all creation. Think about this for one minute. God is over and above and outside, in one sense, all history. All of our present moments and all of our future. He's literally the author Think about that for a moment. God is writing everything in the past. He's already written everything in the present. He's currently writing and everything in the future. He's in a sense already written. It's a matter of fact. He's in control of everything. He is the author and he's in absolute control over how the story is coming along and how the story will end. And in verse four, he goes on, he says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, seven is a symbolic number, means perfect, means complete. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And then from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of kings on earth. He's speaking Trinitarian here. He's saying Jesus is the son of God. He is one with God. Secondly, he's the anointed Messiah, the chosen one who came to save us. Look at, I just said it, verse five. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It literally means chosen one, the anointed God's promised Messiah, the King of all kings. And John tells us that he is the firstborn of the dead. That is a tough title right there. The firstborn of the dead. It sounds like it be belongs on the back of a motorcycle jacket. He goes on to explain what that title means that Jesus is the King who establishes his kingdom, not by conquering others and killing his enemies, but by serving others and being conquered and killed by them on the cross. That Jesus did this so that those who would turn from their sins and follow him could be set free from their sins and become members of his eternal kingdom that began the day he was resurrected. So one, Jesus is the son of God. He's one with God. Two, he's the promised King of Kings, the promised Messiah. Three, he's already came and he's coming again. Verse seven, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. If you don't know, amen means so be it. Make it happen. Let it be. This time, when Jesus comes, his coming won't be conspicuous. No more sneaky entrances known only by a few like his first coming at Bethlehem. This time, Jesus is coming with clouds, the text says. You see that it says with clouds and not in the clouds or not through the clouds that John is telling us here. He's not talking about precipitation. He's talking about the Shekinah glory of God that filled the temple in the Old Testament when God showed up. The kind of glory that people couldn't even walk in or they would be demolished, they would be destroyed. That God that Jesus isn't coming quietly this time. He's coming in hot. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, he says, and all of the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. John is getting at something we all need to hear. If Jesus is really like this, if he is really God of all gods and king of all kings, and he has already left heaven and came and died for us so that we could know God and be forgiven of our sins, then there are only two possible ways to respond to him. Like John, we fall at his feet and we say, I love you and I worship you. I'll give you all, my all for the rest of my life, or we Wail. We hate him. We run from him. We try our best to ignore him. There really is no middle ground. There is no, Jesus is such a nice guy. He's so sweet. No, no, no. The real Jesus doesn't allow for that if that's how you are treating him, you don't know him at all. And when he shows up like this in his glory, you are going to wail at that time. And at that time, it will be too late. Lastly, Jesus is the eschaton. Now, what is that? Jesus is the new creation. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first. Jesus was present at creation. He was the word of God spoken. When God spoke the word, that's Jesus. Jesus is at the beginning of all things. And I am the last. That last word is in the Greek, it's called eschatos. It means the end times, it means the end of all things. Now, I mentioned this before, but it's important for us to understand. When Jesus died and was resurrected, He got a new body. He didn't come back as a spirit. He wasn't a ghost. So many people misunderstand what resurrection means. Resurrection is not life after death. Resurrection is life after life after death. Resurrection is you is Jesus Christ getting a new body and walking into this earth, a body that will never die again. Let me go and explain this to you in the best place in the New Testament where he talks about what's called the resurrection body. And that's in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. What to 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, oh no, no, I'm gonna go to 1 Corinthians 15 verse 35. We got it up there? Boom, Excellent. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. Come on, Paul, don't slap our hands. We don't know. Keep reading. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. See the seed metaphor? And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans and other animals and other birds and other fish. Here's his correlation. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Look, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It cannot die. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Now that is a confusing term. It's used nowhere else in antiquity. Those two words don't go together. Spiritual body, physical, the spiritual physical. That's kind of like saying that. It's raised a spiritual physical, Right? He's not a platonic thinker that separates. He's not a Gnostic who thinks that the flesh is bad and the spirit is good. He says, no, when you sow your flesh, you're coming back in Christ, you're coming back a spiritual physical. Keep reading, 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, Jesus a life-giving spirit. Now, here's what's interesting. That's the concept. The concept is when a Christian gets put in the ground, they're like a seed that goes in that looks like a seed, but then it's raised again, right? When it comes up out of the ground, it looks completely different. It's got a completely different body than the one that went in the ground, right? He's making that metaphor for the Christian life. When the Christian dies and is buried, he comes Alive again with a new physical, spiritual, physical body. Okay, that's the concept. And this is what I would ask him, but what does that look like? Well, John is going to answer that for us in Revelation chapter one. This is the real Jesus Christ. Look at verses 12 We're going to go through 12 through 18 this morning. So when Jesus was resurrected to new life and glorified at the right hand of God, what does he look like now? Chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. That's the candles. We'll talk about that later. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, that's a prophetic term that goes back to the book of Daniel. That's Jesus' favorite term of himself. I'm not going to get into it this morning. We'll talk about it more later. Clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The only people in the Old Testament who ro- wore these long robes and these golden sashes were priests and kings. We see in the first chapter, Jesus is both. Keep reading. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. Okay. There goes the, the brown haired highlights, Jesus. His eyes were a flame of fire. Okay, now first off, let me just pause. This is what John is seeing. This is how John's describing it. This is de- Please do not take this into your American mind and think that this is a literal de- depiction of the actual, what, what Jesus is going to look like when he shows up to you. You're like, I was really disappointed. I was expecting flamethrowers for eyes. <laughs> like This is like saying somebody has piercing piercing blue eyes. His eyes are on fire. I I don't know exactly what that means. It means he's burning with truth, with purity, with intensity, with power, right? It's meant to be metaphorical, but this is what he is seeing. This is how he's describing what he's seeing, okay? The White hair, in the Old Testament, white hair represents wisdom, right? Let's keep reading. How am I doing? I'm all right. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. If you hear last week, you remember that the kingdom of God destroyed the kingdom of the world and the the Old Testament significance of that was uh, uh, the fulfillment of the story in Daniel chapter two that the statue, all the kingdoms of men, the statue was a mixture of iron and clay feet and Christ knocked out the feet and shattered the feet and because it had weak feet, it toppled over, well, Jesus has feet of bronze. His kingdom is eternal. No one will destroy it. No one will stop what he wants to make happen. Like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. If you've ever been near the ocean, you know that the ocean is both calming, it's just constant and it just soothes you to sleep. When my kids are being loud or they come and sneak in, into my room and they have the sniffles and they won't stop making noise. I turn on my sound machine and I always turn on the ocean. It has a soothing, calming effect. But also, if you've ever been in the ocean when things are not going well and a storm is beginning to swirl, it is also absolutely terrifying, deafening, fearful. That's the way the voice of Jesus is. In his right hand... He holds seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His word is sharp. His word pierces. His face was like the sun shining in full strength, right? You, You guys have done this before as a kid, right? You're trying to look at the sun and if you know, if you get a glimpse of it, it's burning your retinas out of your head, right? I wanna see it, ah! You're killing yourself right now. That's the face of Jesus. Guys, that's Jesus now. He's not this just sweet little babe. He's not the humble carpenter that you wouldn't even recognize in the marketplace anymore. He's not the son of Mary, the cousin of John, you know, that little Nazarene, nothing good comes from Nazareth. He's not that guy anymore, in a sense. His face shines like the sun. the glory of Jesus here is almost beyond description. And this is what we are destined to behold. And what we're all, here's the other interesting thing, what we're all destined to become in some subordinate way. Think about that. We're looking at the glorified Jesus And the end of our salvation ends in us Christians having a glorified body that if we in our flesh now saw what we were to become, we might fall at our feet and worship ourselves. Now it's lesser glory than Jesus, but it's still, this is something that's happening to us. Jesus here. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Guys, if the Jesus you know doesn't floor you, then you don't know the real one. When you come into his presence, you don't swagger in. You don't come in disinterested. You don't leave disinterested. You don't look and go, ah. You fall flat or you didn't see the real Jesus. He says this, but well, for the Christian, if you get a glimpse of this and you realize, well, what could I do in the presence of the one whose eyes burn like fire, whose tongue is like a sword, whose face burns like the sun. What could I do? I'm gonna die in the presence of that guy. So I'm gonna lay down. I'm gonna humble myself. I'm gonna say, don't destroy me by your glory. And this is where we still see Jesus is still that humble guy from the gospels. He puts his right hand on John and he says, fear not. I am the first and the last. Same thing they said about God, who was, who is, who is to come. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. John saying, There is nothing outside the control of Jesus. He's in charge of death. He's in control of it. He has the keys in his hand. Now listen, this is the real Jesus this morning. He deserves your worship, your all. Nothing less will do. But as I close this morning, I want us to see one more thing. So, the context, the Christ, and now I want us to take a look at the candles. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice of the one that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. So before John sees Jesus, he sees these seven lampstands, these candles, right? Then in verse 20, let's skip to verse 20. He said, John or Jesus explains for us what these things mean. All right, look at verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, boom. Jesus tells John, this is a wild vision. You're seeing lampstands. I don't want you to speculate what the lampstands are. Here's what the lampstands are. The seven lampstands are representing the seven churches spread across Asia. Now, if you know, the lampstand is a very important piece of furniture from the Old Testament temple. The priests were in charge of keeping them lit 24-7. And here we see Jesus is the new high priest who is keeping track of all the lampstands, even placing an angel to oversee each one of them. But then Jesus says the candles are the seven churches. Now, Rob is going to talk about the seven churches next week. I'm looking forward to that. The number seven represents completion. And so in a sense, when when Jesus is talking to seven churches, he's talking to every church. He's talking to all the churches, the church universal, the church around the world, every church that exists. All right? Now, what is Jesus trying to get at by comparing the church to a lampstand? Well, you remember when Jesus taught his famous sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he told his disciples this, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand, a lamp stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, Jesus says to his disciples, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying here, our God is a consuming fire. His glory is like no other, but his church is meant to be a flame as well. Lesser, but still aflame. The city, the outside world, outsiders should look in at the church and see our light shining. Now, this does not mean, I feel in our culture, anytime we think about light shining before man, all we think, we think in blanket terms of just morality. And and specifically, we think of things we don't do. We aren't supposed to be known for the things we don't do. Right? Growing up, my pastor would say, right, we don't cuss, we don't chew, we don't hang out with those who do. Right? Like, That's not what he's talking about. Your light shining before men. Look at all those Christians, how they don't do all those things. He says specifically that your light would shine before men, that they would see your good works. Your good works would shine before men. What is that? That's our love for one another how we take care of one another, how we meet one another's needs and provide for one another and care for one another and sacrifice for one another. And it's also how we love those on the outside. We love the poor. We love the outcast. We love the marginalized. We serve them. That's, what the good, that's the good works he's talking about. And that's how these first, Christ, first Christians responded in the kingdom of Rome. That's how they responded and that's how they multiplied. John says in verse six, that Jesus has made us a kingdom priests to his God and father. Do you know what that means? Every Christian in here today, you are in this eternal kingdom and you have been made a priest to God. A priest is a person who works as an intermediator, intermediary between outsiders and God. They are connectors. A priest introduces people to God. They aren't God. They can't save anyone themselves. They just make the introduction. Let that sink in for a moment. If you're a Christian, you are in the kingdom of God, that's your primary identity, more than a citizen of the USA. As a member in the kingdom of God, God has appointed you as a priest. You are called to introduce people to this amazing God to this glorious Jesus. I I can hardly imagine a greater responsibility that the God of all things, the Lord over history as the author of all creation has written you into his story. He's written every detail. He's written your background, He's written your education. He's written your career career field. He's written your neighborhood. He's written your neighbors. He's written your coworkers. He's written your family members. Every detail of your life has been written by the author of all things. And he has made you a priest. And he says this, all of those people who surround you, all of those people I've written into your story, they need a priest. And when I say that, I don't mean somebody who wears a collar. I mean a Christian who's in the kingdom of God, who has the spirit of God in them. All of those people who know you, they need a priest. And here's the the kicker, that priest is you. Get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. And then get a glimpse Oh, it's not just I worship this Jesus, it's oh, he's put me here to introduce people to him. I'm a priest that gets to point at him. I'm a priest that gets to say, come in here and take a look at this real Jesus. I wish I had more black folks in here. That's all I can say this morning because your response is pathetic. Thank you. I'm just waiting for it to land somewhere. God has assigned you to your post. Wherever you are, you are there because he sent you there. Can you play your part? Can you let your light shine and be a person who connects other people to Jesus Christ? Can you be a lamp? You're a lampstand. You're not Jesus. You don't have to be perfect. You're gonna screw up. You're gonna make mistakes. You're gonna do dumb things. You're gonna say dumb things. And you're gonna remind yourself, hey, I'm a priest. I'm I'm not Jesus. I'm him. I'm just a sign pointing other people's to him. Now, you might say, I'm scared that people will think I'm weird. I'm afraid people will reject me or say I'm some kind of religious nut job. Listen, I understand. Our culture loves lukewarm religion. Our culture loves lukewarm pastors. Pastors just get up there and say nice things about us and be there so we can get married. We want somebody to talk at the funeral and no matter how we lived our life, just say good things about us after we die. They don't want somebody that speaks the word of God. Our culture loves lukewarm religion and often despises and ostracizes people who really know God. And people, listen to this, who love others enough to make things uncomfortable sometimes. If this is real, I got to... If Christ is coming back like this with fl- eyes of fire and a, so- and a tongue that's speaking out of his mouth that's a sword and everybody's going to wail, do you know what that means? There is no second chance. There is no, oh, oh, I didn't know. Oh, you're really serious about this hell thing. I, I, I thought it was an analogy. I thought it was a metaphor. I didn't know you were really serious about that. We have the Bible. We have the scripture. We have the spirit of God. We've been, we've been shown the future. We know what's coming down the pipe and we are afraid to make things uncomfortable with our neighbors. We're afraid of socially, making things socially awkward. Really? Hell is forever. 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 We are priests. We have that message right now. I'd rather make things a little uncomfortable now so that they can be saved by Jesus and they can worship in his glory rather than be consumed by his glory later. Man. I know that was intense. I felt it too. This is the last thing I want us to see. How do we get the boldness that we need to make things uncomfortable sometimes? Say, do you know this Jesus? you want to come to church? You want to come to missional community with me? Do you know this Jesus? How do we get the strength of character to, and the boldness to do that? And yet, here, hear me, because you don't see me do what I just did very often. Also, the humility to not run people over, to not say, we, you know, we're better than you or somehow we're holy, holier than thou. But we can actually come under that and say, no, we are broken sinners. And we need this savior. How do we get the humility and the boldness? It's right there in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's the holiness of God. That's the glory of Jesus. I don't deserve to be in his presence. He's made of different stuff than me. He has a resurrected body. He's more glorious. He's got more glory than me. I fall at his feet as though dead. Whatever you want, Jesus. My response is whatever you want, Jesus. Whatever you want for me, I will give it to you. That's my response. But look here. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Fear not. The new creation, Jesus, is still simultaneously the loving, gracious, meek Jesus. Though we don't deserve to be in his presence, reaches out his right hand on us and says, fear not, fear not. Now, the only reason we can fear not, this isn't for all of humanity. He doesn't say this to all of humanity, blanket humanity, fear not, fear not. No, 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 no. To those who are in Christ, to those who have placed their faith in Christ, fear not. Why? The judgment that's coming has already come for Christians. Our judgment was placed on Christ at the cross and he died our death and he was resurrected in our new life. And so he is our representative. He is our head. He is our high priest. And so if you are in Christ, you've already been judged. There is no more judgment for those in Christ. But If you're not in Christ, there is a sure judgment judgment coming. So my plea for you this morning would be that you'd put your faith in this Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ who is worthy of all your worship. Let me pray. Father, this is a glorious text. And by that, we mean both senses of the word, It is spectacular and draws our adoration and draws our worship, and it's also terrifying. You see us to our core. You know who we are. You know how we try to minimize you and avoid you. Father, would you help us? Would you humble us? And would you also exalt us as we put our faith in Jesus Christ. You lift us up out of our self-centeredness and seat us in the heavenlies with Christ. And Father, as we come this morning to your table, we're reminded once again that nobody earns their way into your kingdom they're brought in by your body and your blood. That's our citizenship. That's how we get welcomed in. You died for us. You rose for us. And we put our hope and our trust in you this morning.